you know, it's times like this when I wish Coach O could come on the show. Hey, 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 what up, Coach? <laughs> Baby, what's going on? Oh, Coach, I, I didn't think you made the chat room. What's going on, Coach? Former head coach. Uh, you know, I'm Coach O, bitch, you know, and I'm, I, I became a little more proficient with that uh, technology when I was on my little sabbatical, you know what I'm saying? Go Tigers. They did you wrong. Go Tigers. They did you wrong, man. Uh, we have your back here in the sports antidote. We know that. Look, man, LSU had to make a move to the uh, – to the guy from Notre Dame, Kelly, we get it, but uh, you're still our coach, man. And um, you know this this episode, we're talking about revenge. I know last week you had a pretty hot take on the transfer portal. I, I think you wanted to maybe address that next. You came on the show, but you're on now. So what's up with this transfer portal? I know you're not. Yeah, well, I call it the, the transfer porta potty, baby. A transfer <laughs> transferable porta potty. You know, I mean, I think it's a bunch of crap. And um, you know, I mean, look, I, I don't get me wrong, your boy Kelly. I mean, look, I'm Coach O, bitch. I'm so good. I got all my players going to the NFL. I mean, you got to replenish the talent every now and then, you know what I'm saying? You know, that, that uh, coronavirus and all. So, I mean, I understand that boy had to use it to get some new players and all, and I, I wish him luck. But I think it's just a bunch of bunch of crap that's going to ruin, ruin um, you know, uh, amateur athletics and all. And I think it's it's ironical that they, they got that going on at the same time they got the the NIL or whatever, and then the, uh, you know, the gambling and all, it's all tied in. No offense, you know, about that gambling and all, but I mean, I'm taking. This thing is about, it's become more about money, and then little kid's going to be like, ooh, my team ain't good, so I'm going to go somewhere else because I'm a big crybaby and all that, you know what I mean? Coach O don't think they, they're, gonna, they're not going to have as much grit now with all that, I think. Go Tigers. Coach, you wouldn't have done this at LSNU, correct? You wouldn't be rolling like this. Oh, no, baby. You know, I, I would try to get Leonard Fournette back or something, you know. I mean, I, I, I figure out a way to go. You know, we just start plugging and playing and kicking ass, baby, because we all have some new Tigers. Well, I mean, we used to be. I mean, I'm always, you know, whatever I mean. It's something like that. I, I'm still getting paid and getting laid by him, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, we know that, Coach. Yeah, speaking of which, we should cut some sort of some sort of deal with you. You're still getting that cheese. I think eight and a half, uh, no more than that. Many more. Well, look. Well, I mean, when I was when I was kicking ass and winning more than ten games a season, Ellison, you were still paying people all over the country for different teams. You know, they they had them stupid contracts and all. So, I mean, who knows? I mean, it's kind of related, I guess. You know. Yeah, it is. I I agree, Coach. This episode's on revenge. I know that you're I'm not going to say you're a vengeful spirit, but I think you may have some some uh, stones left unturned, uh, turned to you know seek exact revenge. Perhaps would that be against LSU? What's your take on revenge in general? Well, I mean, look, you know, sometimes I want to wake up and I want to call in an air raid on uh, Troy or, you know, something like that. But then, you know, Coach O got to let it go. I mean, <laughs> it is what it is. Um, I mean, I got I, I whipped Nick Saban's ass, you know. I told everybody I was going to do that. I, you know, I said, uh, roll tide who and all that, you know, and then I came back. We kicked their ass. And I mean, I'm not going to lie, Tua came back in that game, did a good job. But I mean, we, we crushed them. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, it's just going – everything's going to work out, you know, in the end because I'm still Coach O, bitch. And, I mean, they got a bunch of short-sighted people over there at the, the, the Athletic Foundation and uh, the board and all that, you know. And, you know, they, they, they get real impatient with them players and them coaches and all. But, I mean, it, it is what it is. You know, I'm always going to be cool, baby, because I'm always going to be Coach O. That's that, all that matters to me. That's right. right. That, yeah, as long that as long as I'm able to go fishing down and hunting and, hunting and fishing and, and grabbing them chicks, baby. All good. I don't mean like grabbing them, just like you know, pull them off the shelf or nothing. I mean like you know, 
uh, meeting them and stuff. Go Tigers. <laughs> I'd love to see your Tinder profile. Yes, go Tigers, Coach. And uh, I just um, wanted to close with this. Uh, right now we're uh, attacking Ukraine. Or, excuse me, we're not attacking Ukraine. <laughs> Russia's attacking yeah, no, Ukraine. And, you know, you're talking about revenging or avenging Troy. Well, I can't get my words together. You just surprised me. You, when you blessed me with your presence, you leave me starstruck. Yeah. Coach, if you were to ever see Troy again, I know you owe them one. At whatever college you go to, would you try to schedule Troy so you could maybe knock down those walls, no pun intended, to exact revenge on when they came in? And uh, sorry to say, they kind of embarrassed LSU, the Troy University. Oh, yeah, baby. I'd, lo- I'd love to. You know, I mean, I'd like to. First of all, I mean, no matter where I'm coaching, if I was in uh, Pennsylvania or something, you know, I'd be wanting to play Penn and I'd be, I'd like to be state champion. You know, I mean, so I want to yeah. be there in school. I go back to California. I'm going to beat, you know, uh, Fresno State, all them going to whip their asses too. And so, but, but, so I don't, don't be in that list too. You know, be one of them out of conference games or something. No problem, baby. Bring them. Yeah, coach, and you're coming. Uh, I'll tell you this. You were always state champion at LSU. You whipped Northwestern's ass. You whipped Southeastern's ass. You whipped Nickel State's ass. Tulane didn't want to get their ass whipped. You whipped everybody's ass in the state. You'll always be my state champion. Coach, anything you want to close with? Oh, yeah. You look, I I mean, I want you to know that I'm always Coach O, bitch, and I'm coming. And, you know, we always got to go Tigers. Go Tigers. Thanks, coach. We'll see you soon, bro. Take it sleazy. something my friend you ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight what i always ask that of all my prey i just like the sound of it what the hell is that you know what it is bitch bang welcome to the sports antelope episode number 89 i'm your host danny belts bringing the pain today ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight, we'll be talking about that in comparison to I wouldn't want to play Gonzaga, Tim Burton's Batman, not the new cuckoldry they made starting with Christopher Nolan. That's right, I just said that. I have a funny poker story for you, another one. Not so much the result of what happened in the tournament, just something that happened in the tournament that was hilarious. Uh, the restaurant Weeds, we're going to talk about that briefly. I had a crazy dream last night. We're going to have to address President Biden's State of the Union. <laughs> of course, I'll do it as rapidly and as objectively, but as funnily, new word, as I possibly can. Tommy Bench and Bro Exotic are jumping on the show. Michigan, as we predicted, with under AP Coach of the Year, Phil Martelli, instead of Jawan Howard, they are winning. Disgracing cross-town rival Michigan State. Uh, East Lansing rolled in there and got blasted last night. Yikes. I uh, know we'll be talking about all of the Batman stuff. The Batman in comparison to Gonzaga. I would not want to play Gonzaga. And I have some analysis on that game versus St. Mary's. Have my notes right here. As well as Michigan's game versus Illinois. And most importantly versus Michigan State. I also want to talk about the restaurant weeds real quick. You know, here I am 15 years removed from being in the food and beverage industry. And I'm telling you, I still have nightmares. Literal nightmares. Like, like last night about being in the weeds. I'm running around a restaurant. It's one of the ones I worked in. Everybody's pissed. Somehow I don't have a shirt on because I sweat through it. And I was like taking a shower in the bathroom in the sink. 
and everybody's banging on the door and no, everyone wants martinis and where's this appetizer and this place doesn't have the right mise en place and they don't have their oyster fork and all this. Oh, God. When you work in that industry, you will be plagued with these nightmares forever. There is no way around it. Um, anyway, Coach O jumping on the show there. Thanks to Coach O, the head coach of the LSU Tigers, Coach Ed Ogeron, state champion and national champion of Louisiana and of the nation. Mr. Lebowski is a, this is the first lady of the nation. Yes. And just a hilarious poker story for you before we kick this off proper. So uh, I'm playing in a poker tournament. I've been wildly successful in the cash game since clearing the head. And the tournaments haven't been as as good, finished out of the money in a big one, cashed in one. And then this one I got put out. I'll tell you the story real quick. I uh, came in, I'm, so real quick, I'm in the big blind and we're late in the tournament. The, the, the Annie's are, the Annie's are like 400 a person and the big and small blind are like two and 4,000. Consider that you start off with 4,000 chips. Now the blinds are as big as the buy-in. So needless to say, we've been, we're along the way here and I get priced in pretty good on the big blind. I pretty much are in the, on the button, pretty much realized a uh, pre-flop, the small and the big blind, we're not going to raise and yes, the small blind limped in and the big blind check. So we see a flop. I have 10-9 suited and 10-10-9. Flop the nut boat. Look at this. And <laughs> two checks around. And the dude that's the chip leader pushes all in, unprovoked, all in. He was the one that initiated this little raise pre-flop. And he gets two people to call right in front of him. They call us all in. The flop is 10-10-9. I have the best hand. Unless you have, no, I have the best hand. There's no, there's no hand better right now. I, I beat pocket nines. If you have nines, five, tens full. I beat everything. And because no one can have pocket tens because I have one of them. So the most you can have on the other side is, I guess, ten, nine, which I would have gladly chopped this up, but that did not happen. So there's, excuse me, there's three all, yeah, there's three all ins ahead of me. So I call, of course. <laughs> And then the other two guys fold. I know someone has aces. Someone probably has kings. That's exactly what it was. So you have aces over here and kings over here. And this guy next to me called with jacks. That is just crazy. I don't know how on what galaxy you think your jacks are good. I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> We're all just like, wow. I mean, I would have contemplated kicking. I don't know if I would have kicked kings. But certainly you have aces. You're going to play those. You can't put someone on a 10. And... There is in front of me, aces, kings, jacks. I turn over 10-9, and people are drawing really, really thin. And the turn is an ace, so I got cucked immediately, and that dude goes full. I'm praying for the case 10. Didn't come, and the river was another ace, so they boat him up on the turn and quad him up on the river. Just a nice kick in the nuts. Well, before that happened, <laughs> I'm on one of these tables and sports gambling came up at the table and I kind of perk up a little bit and start smiling. And I don't talk much at the poker table. I like to really kind of do a lot of, I hate to say this, oh, reading, but I am. It's something I'm good at. Observation always have been, especially now that I can't keep telling you how clear my head is, how things just make sense that just never really made sense before alcohol aside, just clearing some of the demons out and just kind of Filling that space with just other things other than just the, the demons that just lingered inside me for so long. And poker seems to be a really good release in doing so. Gambling will always be a part of my life. That's just, you know, wife doesn't care. If I, if I was losing money, she would know and tell me to stop. So trust me, she just do what you do. 
I'm always going to be able to pick a winner. We all know that. Heavy side of a coin flip, 61% in football this year. Find someone doing that. Probably around 75% in futures. You know the drill. And yes, I talk about everything I do well, but nothing I don't do. Yeah, and I cuck. We know. So in this instance, there's a guy talking about, hey, you know, man, I have a great bet. Great bet for the Masters, man. I got the Masters down. Anybody here bet golf? Uh, uh, you know, I technically, if you know what I do, yeah, I bet golf every tournament. Although I hate golf and I don't really bet it, technically I am. You know what I mean for those who know me. Anyway, so I could name you all the goofy-ass golf names, the most white privilege names you've ever heard in your life. It's absurd. I, don't, <laughs> I just wish there'd be some white guy named, like, Chance... Whiten Whitelberg or like no Chance Whiteman or no that's not too you know, some of these names are ridiculous Paris English or something get get out of here with that Harris English really Harris really tough for you growing up huh Harris I would have dunked his head in the toilet every single day in third Harris English you're going down <laughs> hope you didn't wash your hair today buddy I'm gonna do it for you so this dude's like I got it man you know. You got to take long shots. It's all about taking these long shots. And then, you you know, over a period of time, you can really, um, I have no idea where this accent is, but I'm pretty close. You can really like, you know, get get good odds and get your money back. Um, you know, it just, it's good. It's good. It's a good thing. I'm like, oh, cool, man. He goes, you, you right there. You nodding. You, you bet golf. Yeah, man, I do. And actually, I have a lock for the Masters. And he's like, oh, do tell. I'm like, all right, well. I said, <laughs> I was texting my brother this last night, and I think he almost shat his pants. But I was like, you know, there's a 500-to-1 long shot named Shooter McGavin. And everyone at the table starts putting their hands in their face. If you didn't know, Shooter McGavin is the antagonist from Happy Gilmore. And actually, he's the protagonist. He's misunderstood. Happy Gilmore is the antagonist, much like Danny in The Karate Kid is the antagonist. Sociopath, full stop, period. Loser. How do you not root against that guy, especially in Cobra Kai? Are you kidding? That's a whole nother episode. So, <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, Shooter McGavin. Um, he should have won it in 96. That's when Happy Gilmore came out. I like, but he didn't. And if the goon, if the minion from Maniac Mansion, stop right there, Maniac Mansion, it, that's the guy. Come here, you jackass. That's the main character from this show, Maniac Mansion. Google that. <laughs> Failed show on like some family network I used to watch. And they made a bad Nintendo game that you can't beat because it cheats. Edna and all these cheat codes, whatever. So, <laughs> so I got this guy going. He's like, Shooter McGavin. Ne- never heard of him. I'm like, yeah. So like I said, he was going to win the tournament. He would have won the Masters if this minion from Maniac Mansion had just ran him over proper with the Beetle and then put it in reverse. But instead, he just ran him over, called him a jackass, and then ran into this pole after Shooter McGavin had to strike the ball off Frankenstein's freaking foot. And furthermore, had he just taken the guy up on going to Red Lobster, we wouldn't he be having this conversation? At this point, like three guys are like, like they're trying, they're trying to hold it in. It's like a movie scene. They're laughing so hard. The dude's looking around, but he doesn't know that it's a ruse. So he's like, Shooter McGavin. And he takes out some like pen. You know how these old school like bookies have like a little pen pad they flip out? <laughs> Pocket protector. And he's like, Shooter McGavin. What'd you say the ads were? 400 to what? 500 to what? 500. That's good odds. 
$10 wins like 4000 It's not quite Boston. I don't know what it is. It's like Faustin or something. I don't even, I didn't care. I ended up putting this dude out shortly thereafter anyway. Chump. I cucked him proper. I'll tell you about that some other time. This isn't a poker podcast, but be prepared to hear poker stories on here, especially ones like this. So then I just kept this, this thing going until finally he left the table. He's like, well, good hand, but shoot him again. I'll remember the name. Like, what is this? Achilles? Like, what are you? Like, Achilles, I'll remember the name. Like, <laughs> oh, man, I got some props after that before getting removed from the table by a homeboy with every ace in the deck. At one time, I did the same thing with the movie The Replacements. I was talking about the Washington Sentinels and this comeback quarterback named Joe Falco who's going to avenge his sorry Sugar Bowl performance. I like, I like the Sentinels plus eight. And some guy's like, this, what league is that? I'm like, ah, I think it's like right in between arena and European league. <laughs> it's amazing what people will believe if they don't watch stupid, funny sports movies. So you should do that to avoid the abuse. I can't take the abuse much longer. So... Let's get into the Biden thing. So, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm sure Tommy Bench is going to talk a little bit about this. I saw what he was going to talk about, Bro Exotic as well. Um, we have some new listeners, Bro Exotic, interesting guy, much like Coach O. Tommy Bench kind of talks the sense on here at the end, bat and clean up. Many takeaways. I listened to the entire thing objectively. And I'll tell you, I, the things I took away was we're going to throw money at inflation. It seems to be the thing. And at the end of it, I can't get over the go get him. Like, go get who? Go get him? Go get him and go get him is a totally different pronoun. That, that, that's a, uh, I, I don't know. I, <laughs> I don't know what the hell he was talking about, but I know one thing. Economic sanctions are weak. Weak. I haven't been listening to the conservative circuit recently. Let me just give you a quick history lesson on economic sanctions and their success or lack thereof. When we put economic sanctions on Germany, it didn't work. When we put economic sanctions on Japan, it really didn't work. When we did the same thing to Italy for getting into Nigeria or whatever African escapes me, Northeastern African, I think it is Nigeria. Well, whatever. When we did it to the Italians, it did not work. So note, it will not work in this case. Economic sanctions are like a sideline warning in basketball. Nothing happens. It, it, It just, it's stupid. And so when we talk about doing this, it is all barking no biting. And the question of the, the million-dollar question, if the angry orange man was in office, would this be happening? You can answer that yourself. I think I know the answer for myself. We'll never really know because it's happening while the orange man's playing golf and while this man's being president, I think, or whatever he's doing. Anyway, so let's break down Michigan real quick. So I said last week, look at Michigan. They've had three games since then. They've won two of the three. Uh, yesterday, a thumping of Michigan State. But before that, they played Illinois. Illinois, a very, very good team. Remember, we talked about Juwan Howard, how he's a loser, he's a terrible coach, and how Michigan would probably rally around a better coach under Martelli. That's exactly what is happening and what has happened. So in the Illinois game, there is a stretch in that game where Illinois hit seven consecutive threes. I don't think I've ever seen that. And they got this lead up to 20-something. And in college basketball, that becomes not insurmountable, but extremely difficult because you won't see runs in college like you will pro. Although basketball be a game of runs, at the same time, this is a very difficult thing to come back from. And Martelli hoarded his timeouts. They're down by 22 points. And I watched this happen. Within the last 
eight minutes of that game, this man put on full display why he is an amazing coach. Had Jawan Howard been coaching this game, he would have gotten to his third fight with probably the mascot for Illinois, make it a trifecta, now a coach, a player, and a mascot, kick him out, uh, whatever. But um, at this point, Martelli switched up the defense multiple times. They even went to a 1-3-1 full-court trap. I haven't seen that in so long. A 1-3-1 full-court trap where they were denying the inbound pass, turning their back to the inbounder to chase around anyone in the vicinity, trying to receive the inbound pass on either corner. Full denial where the home run ball is wide open if you can just get it over top. And they couldn't. And forcing turnovers, making Illinois' coach scratch their head, calling timeouts consistently, breaking every single Illinois run, chopping them at the knees, changing their offense to an old-school flex from the outside instead of the high screen and roll, working the outside motion into the post, and then filtering them through through flashes, back cuts, working brilliant, getting open shots, getting to the free-throw line, scoring in transition, forcing turnovers on a press, putting constant pressure on them to take this lead down to one point. One point. It was a one-point game, and they had the basketball, for crying out loud. I mean, this is indicative of what a great coach does. He puts their players in the best possible position to win because he can't do it for you. But boy, did he put these chess pieces in the right real estate, and it was working. And it was a thing of majesty. It was refreshing. Illinois is a great team. If you told me Illinois won the national championship, I'd be a little surprised. I wouldn't lose any sleep. They're really good. They go nine deep. They're huge, huge guards. Very well coached. And for this to happen to Illinois was shocking because usually, you know, they're like a python. They don't give up that lead. They go up early. They're one of those teams in the Big Ten where it's Jehovah. Done. Not in this case. Illinois won the game by eight points. They had to, Michigan got forced into some fouling situations late. And Illinois made their free throws, what good teams do. And Michigan couldn't hit any threes. Martelli drew up one play, though, out of a timeout where they basically faked this flex, had the guy on the block come straight up to the free throw line, straight up to the free throw line like they were going to give him the basketball. And instead of throwing him the ball, he looks right at the guy like he, that's Illinois playing zone. So they're going to try to break the zone by putting a big man in the middle. And then instead of throwing it to him with the same motion, it was a lob over that guy's head, over the defender, off a back screen for a dunk, a thing of beauty drawn right there on the ground by Martelli. Show me a world where Jawan Howard comes up with stuff like that. Because Martelli has the coaching prowess and the history of this. Ask my brother, who played for him, knows how he runs practice. Knows it's a real practice. It's real game preparation. And thus what happened last night versus Michigan State. Michigan trucked them. It was never a game. One of the best coach teams in the country took one of the worst losses they ever have in Big Ten play. Especially as a ranked team. They're a crosstown rival. They go over there to Ann Arbor and get mashed. Mashed, And every time that game started to get close, or it never got close, but every time they would get some 4-0 run, Martelli would chop it at the knees, burn that timeout now, and they would draw up a design play and score every single time. They did it four times in a row. There's nothing more devastating than another coach stopping a run with a timeout, pulling a chair on the court, whether it be full or a half timeout, drawing up some play, and they score easily. It's devastating to the morale, devastating to the scoreboard, to the gambler, and to the other fans. And make no mistake, that's exactly what happened. And this game was a thing of majesty. Of course, Izzo, all class after the game, 
said exactly what I said. Man, this guy's really good. He was even insinuating probably a lot better than the black guy. No, I'm kidding, <laughs> but I'm joking. But at the same time, clearly he's a better coach, 10 times better. And there's no way Michigan's doing this with Jawan Howard and their broke-ass run-up Duke offense where it looks like it's a pickup game at the JCC or the YCMA, or the YCMA, the YMCA. So clearly I was right. And not that that was a big proclamation of, of, of risk, like woohoo, but it's just fun to watch them play. It's fun to watch Martelli have serious talent again because he hasn't had that in so long. And now that he has it, he's as good as any coach in the country, if not the best. We'll be talking about one of the best shortly in Mark Few with Gonzaga. Oh, <laughs> would not want to play them next as we get into soon, breaking down St. Mary's Gonzaga and what will happen in the West Coast Conference Tournament. Before we get into the thick of that, let me bedazzle you, beguile you with a little comparison. Oh, here he goes. Let's talk about Tim Burton's Batman. I'm a huge fan of the Tim Burton Batman, the original one with Michael Keaton as Batman, Jack Nichol- Jack. Nicholson as the Joker. Um, it was amazing. I like the second one with Michelle Pfeiffer, Danny DeVito, and Christopher Walken. I, the first one is just really good, in my opinion. And Jack, I think he's the best Joker ever. And I know, in order for the Joker to be good, they have to talk about all this depression as it relates to everyday society. And we have to make the movie so depressing you walk out of the theater sad. We can't make movies where the Joker is just evil and funny like he's supposed to be. He has to be super gothic. And we'll make another one now with the lead from the movie Twilight and a woke cat woman. And the movie will come. Cuck. I'll see you there. Tell me, kid, you ever dance with the dead by the pale moonlight? And I really like how that begins. Instead of asking a question, he becomes declarative. Tell me, kid, you ever dance with the devil? And as he says that, he comes into the moonlight, and you can see his face, and he's got this big grin pointing a 44 right at this kid's head. And his partner, Bob's like, come on, let's go, Jack. And then he just goes, see you around, kid. And they would see each other around. Little did anyone know, this young sociopath, Bruce Wayne, would grow up as a billionaire and turn his bat, bat you know, into the Batman in some lair with some crazy car. Where does he get those wonderful toys? So many great quotes in that movie. And... <laughs> And the on the other side, who would have thought this guy would get dunked into like some vat of acid and come out looking all screwy? So they had to paint his face, and he becomes the Joker. And they inevitably would be become mortal enemies. And at the end, Bruce Wayne, Batman, Michael Keaton is holding him up on a bell tower by the hand. He's trying to save his life, and then he kind of realizes, "Why am I trying to do this?" You know, he he asked me. You ever dance by the devil? You know, ever dance with the devil in the pale, by the pale moonlight? And he remembers that quote. He just drops his ass. And revenge in this movie, albeit inevitable and deliberate and very foreseeable, still it's interesting how it happens in this movie, particularly in that one scene where this whole thing came to be, especially when he comes into that moonlight and you can see his face. It's a really, it's an 18-second scene on YouTube. Go, go watch it if you haven't seen it. Uh, you can watch the, it's like a one-minute scene if you want to see the shootings or whatnot, but, but you'll get the gist of it in the shorter one, but whatever. And, you know, I think about that, um, that scene, and it just, man, like, 
I wouldn't want to see that kid later on in life, especially with billions of dollars of resources and free time, who would have thought he'd transform into the Batman. The Batman. But at the same time, I, it did, he did, and then exacted revenge on his enemy, the Joker. When St. Mary's walks on that court, which inevitably they will see each other in the conference tournament, well, that's one thing. If you didn't see Gonzaga St. Mary's over the weekend, let me tell you what happened. So Gonzaga had good guard play. Gonzaga's not that deep. They only go 2-3 off the bench. Their guards, um, Newmhard Bolton and Strawwerther, came in there for 45 combined points. You would have told me that, I would have said they win the game easily. But then if you'd have told me that Drew Timmy, one of the best players in college basketball that might not get drafted because he's a tweener, he's a 6'8", like power forward, but he's a monster. And Timmy, excuse me, and Holmgren, their ridiculous seven-foot lanky-looking center who just a few months ago or a year ago was a 6'2 point guard who, like Anthony Davis, grew a foot and then grew has the body of a center but still has the mentality and the skill set of a point guard. And you can see this in the way um, that <clears throat> Holmgren plays. He can handle the basketball like a point guard, except he's seven foot one. He can shoot the three. He can do anything and everything. He's a ridiculous defender, and he is only 18 years old, and he is only going to get better. Um, he will easily translate to today's NBA. Easily. Uh, no doubt. Full stop. And what Gonzaga does, see, they don't run a fluid motion they don't really run many screening roles, high or low. Why? They don't need to. Because they're so well coached by Mark Few, and they're so well disciplined within this coaching and the parameters of their practice. They make this look so easy. It is easy. Every year, Gonzaga leads the nation, not only in scoring, but in offensive proficiency. In other words, they get the most open shots. By the analytics, they'd be the Houston Rockets, except they can also hit all these mid-range jumpers. This... Metric consists of open threes, layups, dunks, and free throws, and open mid-range jumpers. And no one gets more of these looks than Gonzaga, not because they're all that good, and they are, but they're extremely well-coached and well-disciplined to space necessarily in the offense where they need to be. You will never see people bumping into each other in this offense. You will never see two people not understanding what's happening in this offense. There is always motion away from the basketball, but forward motion. It's not awkward, stupid motion just so people move. Uh, sometimes I have a problem with that. I get it. But in this, it's not. They run an inside-out offense. If you don't know what that is, it's pretty simple. They feed the ball inside, and then they either try to score it or they kick it back outside. Now, the guards will flash. They will stay put. They will back up, but they always create space. They move constantly without flashing or darting. Not as many back screens in this offense. It's actually just very conventional as far as like an NBA offense almost. Very rare. But you can do this when you have two big men that pass like point guards. And make no mistake, Timmy and Holmgren do just that. And you can also do this when you have adequate guard play. And make no mistake, you get that from all their guards. So this is a nightmare for basically any team they play. Go ask UCLA. But in this instance, what St. Mary's was able to do was get them out of that immediately. And, of course, the commentators, the color guys, it was kind of insulting. Like, oh, this is it. They found the blueprint. They found the blueprint. Like, yeah, oh, what galaxy, do, what, what planet do you live in, chief? 
What do you don't think? What do you think? You just watch this film and like this is it? Like every time the Chiefs kind of sputter, oh, they found the blueprint to stopping Mahomes. There is no blueprint to stopping Patrick Mahomes. He's a freak. Then there is no blueprint to stopping guys like this. It just happened. And St. Mary's has always been a thorn in their side. Oh, and by the way, they have 26 wins and they're really good. And the West Coast Conference is sending maybe five teams to the tournament. Four at-largest. Three of them are ranked. San Francisco Dons, aside from Gonzaga, St. Mary's. You have Santa Clara right there on the cusp. A couple other teams, if they get a couple wins, they'd be around 2021. They'll make the case. And in this instance, St. Mary's was able to do something very simple. They took them out of that in-and-out offense, or excuse me, into the ways they feed it to the post to get it out. They were able to really disrupt that up front physically, and the refs were allowing this, which you rarely see. So, in other words, instead of guards coming down and then running the inside out, they basically were fronting the post as the guards were in the mug of the point guard very physically. A lot of hand-checking. They weren't calling it on both sides. I'll give them that. Gonzaga still played really good defense. They held St. Mary's to 67 points. The problem is St. Mary's held Gonzaga to 57 points, a team that averages 87 points, 40 points under their average. That is insane. That is unbelievable. It's the fewest points they've ever scored in 16 years. As a matter of fact, it's the fewest they've scored in a conference game under Mark Few. It was a defensive clinic, but not so much because of of, of, of the blueprint, it's because of the execution. Now, for me, I can sit here and tell you what I would do. They tried to do this, but it was kind of too late. All you need to do when this starts to happen, they're going to pick you up three-quarter court and breathe down your face, take one of your guards out of the play. Now you're going to run a four-on-four. Have him run up and set a screen right there, a big bully screen. Now you have your four-on-four. You have separation from the guy switching off, and now you can run your in and out. You're just going to run it from farther away. You can run this offense extended as far as you want. It doesn't matter, especially when Timmy's not going to get, you know, face guarded, which was he did. And again, they weren't calling a lot of things they normally would. It was kind of refreshing. But at the same time, St. Mary's had a very, very distinct game plan, and they executed the company strategy brilliantly. Full stop. Gonzaga in 57 points. I've seen Gonzaga score 52 points and a half in conference. They did it versus BYU earlier this year so at BYU. <laughs> which is one of the hardest places to play in all of college basketball. Um, it is a zoo in there. But at the same time, this to me was evident of just a great coaching, great by St. Mary's. But if you think for one second, one second, that this is going to work again, think again. There's seven ways you can crack this egg. I told you the easiest one, and I'm not a Division I basketball coach for the number one team in the country. Something tells me. They'll be able to figure many ways out to make sure this doesn't happen. And furthermore, whoever plays them next is going to dance with the devil by the pale moonlight. It'll be like, tell me, Santa Clara, you ever dance with the devil? And hey, you're about to. And they're going to put that 44 right up to that kid's dome. But this time it's going cock because this team, the way they react after every loss is one thing. But the way they get out of this one, getting embarrassed on national television physically, getting abused mentally, getting embarrassed on that court, and they showed tremendous class after that game, class program Gonzaga, albeit they're woke AF, that's fine. At this, this is very, very evident to me. Whoever they play next, I'd be willing to lay 40 points. I'm taking Gonzaga blind 
They have the bye. So does St. Mary's. Odds are they'll see each other. Probably about a 60% chance of that. Gonzaga will be in the championship in their conference finals, believe you me. And whoever they play first is going to get embarrassed. Embarrassed. And Gonzaga still played great defense in that St. Mary's game, who has a really good offense. They're so contrasting teams, though. Like, St. Mary's likes a slower game. Gonzaga likes a faster game, you know. It was the unstoppable force versus the immovable object, and in this case, the immovable object wasn't going to be moved. It will be moved, much like that tomb when J.C. had his encore. Uh, Yeah, move that stone out the way. Hey, Lazarus, warm up the band, pal. Warm it all up. So you can go ahead and bet on a few things in life, but bet on Gonzaga and some team dancing with the devil in the pale moonlight, MF, because it's coming. And I'm taking Gonzaga blind, blind. And you should too. Are you a white person who wants a lot of credit for helping to create racial equality while you do nothing to help create racial equality? If so, that means you want to be a woke white person. So listen up, because I'm going to give you your PhD in wokeology. Bro Exotic, what's going on, dude? Uh, what's going on, dude? Bro Exotic, Vice Pope, Church of Woke. What's going on, man? Sick. Uh, still the Vice Pope. Good. I'm glad you're retaining that title. Uh, the welterweight champion of the heavyweight woke of the world. So, uh, yeah, good to have you on. Mardi Gras came. I know the woke Pope had to do some business back at um, – well, we'll talk about that later. Woke Pope is – we'll have him on soon. Word on the street, I heard people saw you. You know, there's Christians that usually go – on Bourbon Street and carry like a cross to witness to people that are, you know, engaging in absolute carnal debauchery and such. But I heard that you were there kind of doing your own missionary work. So a little curious to hear what that looks like, bud. What are we talking about here? Yeah, dude. Um, just one of my, uh, my newest uh, projects as Vice Pope. I was uh, spearheading uh, some missionary work to go do some uh, woke uh, street preaching on Bourbon Street during Mardi Gras. Uh, oh, yeah, to let yeah. all the unvaccinated, uh, especially the unmasked, mm. uh, to let them all know that uh, they're headed straight to woke hell if they uh, if they don't get in line, uh, get that vax, get that mask. So, okay, a couple things. So, uh, are you asking before you condemn them to woke hell, which we'll get to that in one second? Do you ask for the vax ID, or do you already know that they are or aren't vaxed? Do you know that? instinctively by looking no, at No, we don't, don't really know that instinctively, dude. We're just uh, just letting them know. Uh, if you're yeah. unvaxxed, uh, woke hell doesn't wait you. Yes. Um, so if you, die, if you die unvaccinated, so basically like a Christians believe if you die and you don't know the Lord, you will go to hell. The same way, if you die unvaccinated. It's, it's more along the lines of like, uh, if you're not, if you die unvaccinated, it's like uh, dying unbaptized. Oh, Nelly. Now we're getting somewhere. So then what the hell by hell is woke hell then? Um, I mean, basically, woke hell is just a terribly hot place because it's in a perpetual state of global warming. Uh, and no matter how many times <laughs> you tell the demons in woke hell to stop misgendering you, they keep doing it anyway uh, because there's no safe spaces in woke hell. <laughs> well, <laughs> so... So you're just subject you just subject to constant ridicule and misgendering. Absolutely, dude. It's uh, it's just and a it's terrible really place, uh, filled with CO two emissions. Uh, very tough to breathe, um, which in <laughs> in turn really makes that temperature really hot. So, uh, yeah, it's crazy, man. Um, it's it's every it's every everything 
that I stand for. It's just the opposite for it, you know? Got it, man. Well, we, <laughs> well, hey, look, thanks for doing the Lord's work, you know? Absolutely, man. I mean, could you imagine uh, dying transgender and woke hell knowing that you will never get your operation to to live your truth ever, ever again? I mean, it's, it's really crazy, dude. I mean, if you if you die unvaccinated and trans, you stay how you are and you don't you can't ever be what you want to be. I mean, it's I can't think of a, a worse way to spend eternity. Wow. I, I could, but that certainly is one way. Well, anyway, well, bro, uh, thanks for thanks for jumping on the show. Uh, quick but powerful. Um, I guess we are. Hey, man, anything you want to close with or we look forward to having you on next week? What's going on here? Absolutely, dude. So we're going to um, we're going to try to uh, be graced with the woke pope's presence. Uh, as you can understand, he is a uh, he's a very busy them, uh, very busy schedule. So yes. uh, we're going to try, try our best to get him on next week, dude. But uh, if not, you know, I'll be uh, be talking about more of the uh, the work I'm doing for the uh, the good Lord, Fauci. Uh, so we'll uh, we'll see. That. And, uh, and by the way, I was uh, also teaching everyone um, on the street uh, about the hell Fauci's. Uh, you know, it might help their chances of not going all the way down to the seventh circle of woke hell, which is where Rush Limbaugh is. Uh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yikes. Okay. Too soon. Well, we get it, man. Well, anyway, bro, <laughs> thanks for uh, saying a couple of health values for me, all right? Absolutely, dude. I'll do every day. All right, man. We'll see you next week. <laughs> all right. Cheers, dude. <laughs> Shots fired. Tommy Bench popping on the sports analyst. What's going on there, Hoss? It's good to be back, pal. Good to be back. Had a little hiatus last week, but we're, we're back and ready to hit it hard here tonight. Let's do this. So, uh, speaking of hitting it hard, it's happening in Ukraine right now, and I know you have a, a military tactful mind, as being as, where, as corny as it sounds, you're a resident Marine, but I'm sure as I read some of your notes, you have some uh, maybe some insight and some things happening here that maybe the news isn't reporting, no matter what side of the fence you're on. So why don't you go ahead and enlighten us uh, and tell us what that looks like. So first off, unlike the president of the United States, I will refer to the Ukrainian people, not the Iranian people. Uh, as he <laughs> it's a good start. Very incorrectly did um, at the State of the Union. By the way, State of the Union, go waste your time somewhere else. There's any number of podcasts that will give you two, three hours on, on everything to do with the State of the Union. All right, let's get into Ukraine. Uh, I, I appreciate the accolades from our, our illustrious host here. But I'm going to start off by saying I was wrong. I was wrong about the Ukraine. And how was I wrong? I really thought, and I'll explain why I thought this, that Russia would roll Ukraine and get to Kiev within four or five days. And they would capture Kiev, sort of on the scale of what we did in Baghdad in 2003, where we just basically pierced right through the Iraqi defenses and made it to Baghdad in very short order of time. And, and keep in mind, Iraq's military in 2003 was more formidable in relation to other world power, other countries' militaries at that time than, say, Ukraine is in current day terms. All right, why did I think that? Well, the Russians have been spending a higher percentage of their GDP over the past 10 to 15 years to modernize their military. Uh, they, they really wanted to 
you know, strike fear into the hearts of people. And that's why you heard these stories. Uh, you know, Russia was messing around with hypersonic missiles. They were trying to develop those. Uh, Russia has also attempted to develop uh, essentially uh, extremely fast torpedoes that use a technology where it blows out a bubble of air in front of it. So it's able to go several hundred knots, uh, which if you were able to perfect the technology to send a torpedo through the water at several hundred knots, there almost isn't a ship on the planet that could evade that. So <clears throat> it seems they, they've, over the last 10 to 15 years, had been putting inordinate amounts of money into modernizing at least the weaponry aspect of their military. Um, and, and, you know, the assessments from the West, the Western powers were, look, they're, you know, they spend 10 times what the Ukrainian government spends on their military. They're just going to roll. They, they have a huge amount of forces upwards. I believe it was upwards of 200,000 troops on the border, ready to go. And they were just going to sack Ukraine in. in... <clears throat> and then slowly but surely, you start finding out the Ukrainians are putting up much tougher resistance. It, it's not going as well as Vladimir Putin would like. There, there are reports that he's getting extremely frustrated. Um, so, so what could be leading to that? A couple of things. One, look, you're, you're trying to very unjustly invade a country, of pe a sovereign country of people who it's not like there's widespread disdain for their leader. You know, when we went into Iraq, you had a good portion of the populace who, as long as we didn't destroy their buildings, they probably weren't going to do much to get in our way because they figured, well, these guys can't be any worse than the current dictator. Um, here, you've got a country that's, that's like, no, this is our country. What are you doing here? We, nobody needs you here. We don't need to be liberated or freed or anything like that. Um, another aspect of it is despite this heavy spending on weaponry and weaponry modernization, it appears they have not spent the money on the boring things, logistics supply chain, the supply core, uh, the ability to fuel, refuel, feed, hydrate a force of several hundred thousand guys. There, there are reports of, you know, Russian vehicles running sporadically running out of fuel and, uh, you know, fuel and food is what keeps the military moving, uh, especially one that's trying to do a sort of blitzkrieg through the um, through a country. So it, it's obvious they weren't spending the kind of money that we spend on our supply chain. And, and this does illustrate the U.S. seems to still be the only country in the world that is able to project power anywhere in the world. We have mature enough supply chains, strong enough and safe enough supply lines that are somewhat diversified that we really, we, I mean, within a week or two, we could decide to wage war almost anywhere in the world, let alone if we have 60 to 90 days to mass forces and supplies and equipment and, and further strengthen supply chains. So it really is a testament to kind of all the boring stuff, all the stuff that doesn't you don't make Hollywood movies about with respect to the engagement of warfare. And it's obvious the Russians haven't just put money into developing that. And another aspect, and this is what we're going to dig a little deeper into, widespread reports that they're using conscripts and, and not just conscripts, but conscripts who receive little to no training. Um, it's sort of like, here's your gun, go to the front. And, mm -hmm. and so these are not professional soldiers, sailors, airmen, or Marines. They, these are conscripts. It's just a body count to the Russians. They really don't care. They're not trying to build a professionalized military force. And, and, and you can see that in the strategy and tactics they're taking. They're, they're kind of employing this almost World War I-esque strategy of, well, we're going to shell an area 
and then try to move in. That's not how the U.S. were. Say the U.S. decided we wanted to invade Ukraine. We would use what's called the combined arms approach. And that is where you put your enemy in a combined arms dilemma. People are thinking, all right, Bench, you've used combined arms. Can you illuminate that for us? Here's the combined arms approach. And, and you're, you want to put your enemy in a dilemma where if they hunker down and stay in place, they're going to get killed by indirect fires. If they pop their head up and try to return fire, you're in a position to hit them with direct fires. So what, what does that sound like? Okay, we're 20 miles away from Kiev. And, and I am going to pronounce it that way. I recently found out that's the Ukrainian way of pronouncing it. The Russian way is Kiev. So it actually pisses Russians off if you call it Kiev. I never want to miss a chance to piss off the Russians. So <laughs> I, will, I will sound like I'm being a cuck and call it Kiev. But all right, we're approaching Kiev. We get to the outskirts. You'd set up your artillery batteries that have a range of anywhere from 15 to 20 miles. And they shoot 105 millimeter shells. I mean, so that's 105 millimeters diameter. It's a pretty serious sized shell. You would start shelling, right? And, and you'd, you'd do some kind of interval, you know, around every 30 seconds or around a minute or something like that on strategic targets. And you would use that to get your ground forces close enough to, you know, maybe three to five miles out from, from what you want to attack and hold. Well, at the three to five mile area, you'd set up your, your 81 millimeters or if you're the army, 120 millimeter mortars. So, so sort of the next step down of indirect fire weapons. Because as the weapon gets smaller, the closer your forces can maneuver without being in trouble, right? Like that, that kind of makes sense. You know, artillery, big shell, big explosion. You want to you want to stay your minimum safe distance is further away than say an 81 millimeter mortar. You maneuver a little closer. Then you get close enough to where you can start having maybe heavy machine gun fire arcing over employed in an indirect fashion and 60 millimeter mortars. So, I mean, at 60 millimeter mortars, you're talking, you're now kind of within a mile to maybe 800 meters of the target you're trying to approach. And with a professional, well-trained military force, you can, you're supposed to be able to execute this seamlessly from bombers overhead or bombing, getting close enough. Now artillery's bombing. I'm still maneuvering. Maybe I'm still in the vehicles at that point. All right, I've now dismounted from the vehicles. The 81 millimeters mortars are set up. I'm closing the last mile or mile and a half, perhaps on foot. And, and then I'm closing the final three or 400 meters with a series of machine gun fires that are coordinated. So, you know, machine guns are keeping their heads down until we're now close enough where we're trading rifle fire five to six, you know, meters away from one another, or maybe, maybe not, five, but, you know, 10 to, 10 to 20 meters away from each other. And then I'm, you know, within five meters throwing hand grenades. So it's, it's that progression, but it takes training. You have to do this training in a live fire environment. I did a lot of that training in, in live fire environments where we were firing real rounds and you have to close on a target. It's, it's complex. You need people on the radios. You need a radio infrastructure that works. You need a supply lines that work to keep all the indirect fire supplied. So it, it's not just shell, 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 because everybody can hunker down and then, and then stop firing and then rush your troops in. No, that's how you're going to get picked off by any schmuck with an AK-47. So it's really obvious that the Russians are trying to prosecute this war with a unprofessional, largely conscript force. And, and the Ukrainians deserve credit. They are putting up stiff resistance. They are not going quietly into that good night. And, and so, you know, a couple of lessons take away from this. One, the Russian military, while, while their weapons have advanced, it appears their tactics, strategy, professionalism, supply chain, logistics, all the other aspects of engaging in military campaigns have not. 
And then I'll close with one final point. I am not, and there are no serious people advocating that we should send U.S. troops in. I think one U.S. lawmaker has advocated we should do that. Nobody's seriously talking about that. But at the same time, you've got nearly a third to half of the Russian military in one place committing what is widely agreed among nations of the world to be an, a, a, an affront against Western civilization, against civilized uh, the civilized nations of the world, okay? They, they're being the bad guys. Nobody thinks the Russians are the good guys right now. I don't even think the Russians think the Russians are the good guys right now. Is there not a scenario where it might be worth it to say put 2,000 drones in the sky out of Turkey and destroy every Russian vehicle inside of Ukraine? They could do it. Is that, I mean, should should we be asking that question? Like, what if... What now? Now the the flip side of that is okay. Well, Putin could lose all his marbles and decide to you know nuke Kiev. Okay, then what are we? Are we then are we really going to nuke? Okay, right. So, so is that calculus worth thinking about? I mean, what if the nations of the world decided, look, with with no warning, we're going to go destroy. We're going to put two thousand or three thousand drones in the sky with sidewinder missiles and take out every Russian vehicle that we can find. We're essentially We'll hook all these drone operators up and give them an incentive system where each Russian tank you take out, you get a $500 bonus. Like, hmm. should that should that be considered? Should that be on the table? Um, one, you play a lot of military power from a guy who obviously is a tyrant and, and is abusive and awful and terrible, and we shouldn't want having a strong military. It might also send the right message to the Chinese that, look, there comes a point there is a line that you can cross where the nations of the world will find a way to hurt you militarily. We are killing them economically. I, I really do wonder how much longer. I mean, if the, if the Ukrainians, I mean, if the Ukrainians can hold out for two or three weeks, which I don't know how they could, at some point they're going to start running out of things to shoot them with and food and water and supplies. But if they could, re- if they could hold out for two or three weeks, I don't think the Russian economy will last another few weeks with the sanctions that are finally being levied so and again a lot of this ties back to and we don't have time to go into it maybe we'll cover it next week our feckless energy policy over the last 13 months if we had the donald trump era energy policy in effect right now we could have we could have been dictating terms a lot longer ago and with a lot more effect in power than we're currently sitting at we are still buying russian oil and gas yep. we are st- isn't that disgusting that yeah. disgusts me that we're in the position that we have to do that so more to follow on that next week, but just want to hit sort of the, the tactical aspect and kind of the why it is that Ukraine is, is able to put up this stiff resistance to what we thought was a much superior military force. Yeah, man, Ben, don't break, baby. That's what they right. say. So that's right. what they're doing. Well, thanks for jumping on the show, bro. I don't have much to say there. You pretty much nailed it all. So just follow this closely. And uh, this this looks to be – your new thing uh, as COVID now is kind of dissipated. Now we can focus on more interesting stuff like this. So we look forward to having you on next week. All right. Out here. Later. Thanks for jumping on the Sports Antelope today. Episode number 89. Ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? Boy, I would not want to play Gonzaga. I'll tell you that. Be sure and rate, subscribe, and review. Reach out and touch your brother. Tell somebody about the Sports Antelope. Follow us on Instagram, of course. Thanks to Bro Exotic and Tommy Bench for hopping on here. Got a hot one for you next week. We'll be breaking down every college game coming towards March Madness that I think every team 
that I feel to be will be impactful. Upsets galore. And if you want to play the man's game, the real man's game, throw your brackets in the trash and let's bet against the spread like God intended. Keep it real, Anadotions! I'm creatively superior, yo. I never lose, I never lost, cause I'm the boss and never will, cause I'm still the...